0: Friends, listeners, readers, I don't really know what to call you. Welcome to episode one of whatever this audio component to Logical Radical is or will be. I don't really know. I don't really know where this will go. Perhaps it will end up being a full-blown podcast with interviews and all that noise. Or perhaps it will just be this sort of audio accompaniment, which is what this one will be, where I kind of go through... Some articles and issues brought up in the newsletter, as well as some additional things, and just chat for a bit. We'll keep it kind of brief, I think. 15 minutes or under is, is the goal. So, uh, thank you for joining me here, and without further ado, uh, let's get to it. First thing I want to get into is, um, you might have seen in the news, the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott, was interviewed, and in the interview he said that he uh, previously was in treatment for depression a few months prior, uh, following the death of his brother from suicide. And now this was very brave of him to bring up, given that, you know, he is the quarterback of, quote, America's team, and he plays a sport and is immersed in a culture that does not treat people kindly for things like that. Let's just put it that way. It's a bo- American football is a, a boorish sport by any measure. So that was absolutely brave of him to do that. And it was important because when people see, you know, uh big athletes, people who um who are generally put up on a on a pedestal for their strength and their prowess, when people see them admitting that they have dealt with some mental health issues. It inspires other people to take care of their own stuff and to realize that none of this means that you are weak in any way, that it is an illness and you should absolutely, definitely, 100% seek treatment for that illness, no matter what it is, no matter how minor or intense it is. So Skip Bayless, Uh, A man who has made a career out of saying stupid things said another stupid thing. But this one goes beyond stupidity. It goes beyond ignorance. It is vile, disgusting, hateful, and also incredibly damaging. Here's what Bayless said in response to uh, the press conference interview. You're commanding a lot of young men and some older men. And they're all looking to you to be their CEO, to be in charge of the football team. Because of all that, I don't have sympathy for him going public with, I got depressed. Okay. Skip Bayless is an asshole. But we've always known he's an asshole. But this is a particularly horrific thing to say. Also, the the way his, his intonation as if depression is nothing, uh, that... He, he got depressed. Like, oh, poor baby, he got depressed. I mean, what a piece of shit this guy is. What a piece of shit. And it actually, it, um, it gets a bit worse from there. He's the quarterback of America's team. And you know and I know, this sport that you play, it is dog eat dog. Mm-hmm. It is no compassion, no quarter given on the football field. If, if you reveal publicly any little weakness, okay. it can affect... Okay, I can't hear this guy talk anymore. Suffering from clinical depression is not weakness. This is, this type of talk is exactly what feeds in and what has built the stigma against mental health care in this country and around the world. It's not weakness Obtaining treatment when you are dealing with a mental health issue is, if anything, brave and certainly necessary. Now, I know that for people who have not experienced mental health issues, it can be more difficult to empathize with what someone is going through because it's different than a physical malady. You do not see it. You just kind of see the result of it. And Skip Bayless feeding into this narrative that seeking mental health treatment is weakness, it will lead to people dying. Because what he is doing here is he is saying that this is the quarterback of America's team. He cannot do this because he will be seen as being weak. He's only seen as being weak by people like you, Skip. And if you're saying like, oh, people are going to, other players are going to yell things at him on the field, I think he'll be all right. He deals with all sorts of shit like that all the time. This is why people suffer in silence. This is why, and the fact that he said this on World Suicide Prevention Day, as the world is on the precipice of a mental health crisis, just makes this all the more, just completely, it's beyond tone deaf, I really don't know how to describe it. I can't really spend any more time talking about this man. And I'm not one that generally calls for someone to be cancelled. but. Uh, If he doesn't come out and not only apologize, but really show that he's learned uh, how damaging a statement like this can be, if he doesn't do that, he should absolutely be fired and no one should ever pay him to talk about anything ever again. Period. Now, on to some good news. The NAACP defeated Betsy DeVos. Yes, that absolutely deserves a round of applause. So, uh, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, the member of the billionaire right-wing Christian fundamentalist DeVos family, uh, her brother is Eric Prince, he is a mercenary, um, who was responsible for the Nisir Square massacre, uh. If you don't know about that, Google it. Uh, in the newsletter, I link to a piece I wrote about Eric Prince. He is a demon. So that Betsy DeVos um, did what she's been doing for a very long time before she's even before she was even Education Secretary. She tried to siphon funds for public education to private education. And this time, it was funds. It was relief funds under the CARES Act uh, that was supposed to be given to public schools, and the her administration instituted a rule that would basically make it extremely difficult for public schools to spend this money without having to allocate a significant portion of that money for private schools. Fortunately, the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia struck down this rule and ruled in the favor of the plaintiff, the NAACP. So that is wonderful news. And it is not the first time Betsy DeVos has lost in court. It is the third time. Uh, at least the third time. And every time this happens, it's a wonderful thing because with each ruling, it makes it a bit more difficult for our public school system to be entirely dismantled from within and the money to be given to private and religious institutions. So these victories are big. This is one in a long line of very important victories. So this is something we can celebrate. Now, on to uh, another legal challenge. Trump is trying to scale back the Fair Housing Act. Now, for those who aren't um, well-versed in housing in America, uh, it has never been equal. That's like the the kindest framing of it I could possibly do. Uh, it's nowhere near equal from the birth of the suburbs to redlining to loan discrimination. It's, it's just not even close. Uh, but the Fair Housing Act... Although it did not go nearly far enough, it did something and it had been strengthened. The Obama administration uh, implemented a rule in 2015 that uh, required local governments to report on segregation, desegregation and poverty and report that to the federal government in hopes that, you know, maybe eventually we would actually institute uh, programs that could actually desegregate this country and alleviate some poverty. That is the rule that the Trump administration is trying to delete. Fortunately, the ACLU has issued a challenge, so let's hope they also win in court. So with that, I would just say, if you have a few extra bucks laying around, maybe toss a few to the ACLU. If there's a rally near you on this subject or any other subject, get out in the streets, make some noise. Man, it's a good beat. All of the beats in this episode come courtesy of J57, by the way. If you don't know, look them up. Uh, One thing I just want to touch on briefly. um, In the newsletter, I link to a piece I wrote in 2016 called A Nausea of the Cells and Soul. And um, given that, you know, we're all dealing with our own mental health issues right now, and I spoke about it at the onset of this, uh, this episode, I think it's important that, that people read it because, um, for me, uh, it's, it's, it's centered around this very short section of the enormous novel of David Foster Wallace's enormous novel, Infinite Jest. And regardless what you think of David Foster Wallace or his writing, this very short section illuminates what it's like to be clinically depressed, to experience suicidality better than anything I have ever read, um... I've worked in mental health care for a long time and at one period we were actually giving this section of the novel out to incoming clinical psychology students because it's it's true marrow level empathy. David Foster Wallace ended up dying from suicide. And and you can tell, you can feel his pain and his his ability to articulate what it's like to an outside observer is is pretty incredible. So I would recommend everybody read that. Less so for me and more so for him. But I will highlight this specific uh, passage from Infinite Jest. This is Wallace. The so-called psychotically depressed person who tries to kill herself doesn't do so out of, quote, hopelessness or any abstract conviction that life's assets and debits do not square. And surely not because death seems suddenly appealing. The person in whom its invisible agony reaches a certain unendurable level will kill herself the same way a trapped person will eventually jump from the window of a burning high-rise. Make no mistake about people who leap from burning buildings. Their terror of falling from a great height is still just as great as it would be for you or me standing speculatively at that same window just checking out the view, i.e., the fear of falling remains a constant." The variable here is the other terror, the fire's flames. When the flames get close enough, falling to death becomes the slightly less terrible of the two terrors. It's not desiring the fall, it's the terror of the flames. And yet nobody down on the sidewalk looking up and yelling, don't and hang on, can understand the jump, not really. You have to have personally been trapped and felt flames to really understand a terror way beyond falling. This is going to be over 15 minutes, it turns out. My goal at the beginning, I did not hit it, but big surprise, everything that I do is too long. Anyway, I I just want to reiterate something because the kind of the theme of this episode was mental health, mental health treatment, mental health care. If you're struggling in any way, please talk to someone. Please reach out. Please seek treatment in any way you can. Do not suffer in silence. Do not. Things will only get worse. Seeking treatment is not weakness. It is brave and necessary. So please do it. You can even reach out to me. You can DM me on Instagram if you're trying to find uh, a a clinic or, or any sort of mental health treatment. I've worked in mental health for a long time. I know a lot of places in New York, but I could probably help you wherever you live. So do that. Reach out to your friends and family. Please do not suffer in silence. Lastly. Uh so we're gonna end this whole thing with the audio from a video piece I did with my producers and editors Aaron Vasquez and Brian Sean Mark. It is a piece on how we should remove all slave owners from our currency, because really we should. They should have really never been on there, especially Andrew Jackson. That guy is a full-blown piece of shit. Genocidal maniac. But the others aren't, you know, aren't that great either. That great. They're pretty horrible. Anyway, we should remove them all from our currency, Uh, so listen to that, and I thank you all so much for listening to my meandering bullshit, Uh, and I hope you join me here next week for whatever that'll be. It'll be a fun journey, you know? It's like we're all on a road trip together, but we don't even know where we're going. We're just heading west, and uh, we'll see what happens. You may recall, there was a movement to replace Andrew Jackson with Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. That move was put on hold by the Trump administration, who didn't want to, you know, cause a stir by replacing a genocidal maniac, a prolific slave owner, with one of the bravest and most heroic people this country has ever known. Decisions, right? They're tough sometimes. I'm here to take that idea a step further. And it's a logical step. It may sound radical, but I assure you, it's not. Let's remove all slave owners from our currency, all of them. Some people may think a move like this is rather trivial in the grand scheme of things, and I get that. It's certainly not nearly as important as dismantling the white supremacist power structures that run things, but it's a gesture that shows that we no longer want to honor anyone who participated in chattel slavery. But that was a long time ago. Things were different. Yeah, I know. Things were different. So why are these people still on our money? But that means taking Washington off the dollar bill. He was our first president. He's the father of this country. Yeah, and... He'll still be in history books, all over history books, and there's still that enormous phallic monument in, where is that again? Oh yeah, Washington, DC. At the time of his death, 317 enslaved people were living at Mount Vernon, and 123 of them were owned by Washington himself. And remember those sweet, weird stories about his cute wooden teeth? They weren't wooden. Many of them were the teeth of enslaved people. He was also a pretty sadistic slave catcher. Look up the story of Ona Judge. Why should black people be subjected to looking at a slave owner's face when they use their money to participate in a society that has a long sordid history of devaluing their existence? Isn't this really like the least we can do? Let's move on to another founding father, Thomas Jefferson. You wouldn't dare remove the father of the Declaration of Independence, the apostle of the Constitution. Oh, I would. You see, the man who declared that all men are created equal didn't really believe that, it seems. Though he railed against slavery, Jefferson owned more than 600 enslaved people in his life. 600. Then there's Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman Jefferson raped when she was a teenager and subsequently had six children with. Jefferson is only on the $2 bill and the nickel, but surely we could find someone more deserving. Let's go back to Andrew Jackson real quick, and I can expound a bit on my genocidal maniac label. Uh, he was a genocidal maniac. Ever hear of the Trail of Tears, the Indian Removal Act? Yeah, that was him. He was nicknamed Indian Killer, and he liked it. Jackson murdered and displaced thousands upon thousands of Native Americans. It was a total ethnic cleansing, there's no other way to spin it, and he was at the head of it. And he owned more than 150 enslaved people when he died. Benjamin Franklin and Ulysses S. Grant also owned enslaved people, though neither at a level anywhere near the other people mentioned. They also did both fight to dismantle the enterprise of slavery, so some say that should excuse their earlier action. Hamilton never owned enslaved people, but his history with slavery is also somewhat wishy-washy. I think it's fine to debate the merits of these folks, but why don't we do that in textbooks and history books? New textbooks and history books that do not wash over the varied atrocities they committed to paint them as infallible skim-milk-hew deities, but rather to reckon with them. No more slave owners on our money, period.